Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I'm going to start by asking you to turn with me to a couple of verses from God's Word in the book of Ephesians. And chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, you can read along. Um, I'd like to encourage people to look at these verses in front of them with their own eyes. I'll put some of the verses on the screen, but these first two little sections I want to read from God's Word. The subject today is the church. It's a large subject, and we're continuing in a series. Uh, we've completed, I think, seven in the series so far on our statement of faith at Read of you Bible Chapel, and we've reached the point where we're looking at the subject of the church. So as we read these verses together, think about what they say regarding the church. What do they teach us about the church? In Ephesians chapter 1, let's read from verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one which is to come. And he put him, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just a few pages over, look at Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read a little section that is addressed to husbands. We're not reading it to learn about husbands per se, but in this passage about husbands, the Lord says a lot about the church. So think about what he says about the church as we read these verses together. Verse 25, husbands... Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and his, of his bones. Wonderful passage about the church of God. Let's just pause and ask for the Lord's help when we think about this subject today. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, for its instruction to us. We thank you for all that we have in it to guide us in the way that we live, in the way that we interact with each other. 
As we consider this subject tonight, we need your help this morning. We pray that you would bless our time together, guide our, our thoughts, and help us to grow in our faith and in our understanding. We need your help in this and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend who told me he was uh, not quite settled in. He'd moved to a new location and I asked him, where are you fellowshipping? And he said, uh, well, we're still shopping. Maybe you've heard that expression. I'm sure you have. Church shopping, the idea of looking around for a place that you think might be the right place for you to, to fit. So I want to start by asking this question this morning. What are you looking for in a church? I'm sure that uh, most of you here today aren't looking for you know, majestic architecture or an elaborate organizational structure. You probably wouldn't be here if that's what you're looking for. Perhaps some would look for those kinds of things. I don't know. What are you looking for? Maybe a place where you would feel comfortable to bring, to bring your family. Maybe you'd be looking for Um, got to go the right direction here. Maybe you'd be looking for some of these qualities that are up on the screen. Somewhere that aligns with maybe your thinking or your ideals or your, your principles. What are you looking for in a church? These are all good qualities, I suppose, that we might be looking for, but I would suggest to you that maybe we need to change the question a little bit. Maybe we need to think again about what, are you, what is God looking for in a church? Or perhaps, more importantly, what is God looking for in his church? This is maybe a better question. And as we think about where we ought to fellowship and where God might have us to be, to serve him and to worship him, we should be considering what, what it is that God really is looking for in a church. We're going to come back to this question in a few minutes. But I, I want to think about the definition of the church. What is the church? The word uh, church comes up frequently in, in uh, the Bible. Uh, about uh, 107 times in the New Testament we read this word church. So there's a lot to say in the word of God about the church. And uh, more than we're going to be able to cover in this uh, message this morning. But we'll cover a bit of ground. The word church comes, uh, is, is a translation of a Greek word, ecclesia, which literally means called out. Interesting, it's interesting to me that often when we look at words that are used in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole, it's not uncommon that you'll have an original Greek word that's translated in very many different ways. And we read it in our English Bibles with many different uh, translations depending on the context. 
And uh, that helps us to understand those words often. Sometimes they're complex words, words that have shades of meaning, and sometimes the context needs to be used to interpret the meaning. But this is a word that is almost always consistently translated as church in the New Testament. 107 out of 112 times we read it as church. And so we can come to understand it. What, what does it mean? Well, it means a group that is called out, a group that is gathered together, an assembly of people, a gathering of people. This is the literal meaning of the word, the church. It's quite different than the word church in our current everyday language in our society. If you were to look up the word church and the definition for the word church in, in the Oxford Dictionary or any others or Google Dictionary, you're going to find this as the definition. It's a building where people meet together to, uh, to worship. That's the first definition that you're going to find. And then you might find under that a second definition, which is an organization. The church is often thought of that way in our society. The church is an organization. We think about what does the church say about these matters and so on. The, perhaps the Catholic Church or some other organization. Interestingly, we don't find either of those definitions applied to this word in Scripture anywhere. The church is not spoken of along those lines at all in the Word of God. And we know that, in fact, the word church is used in the Word of God as referring to the people who are gathered together. It is the people who are the church. I appreciated this definition that I found by a man by the name of James Gunn, a man who taught the Word of God in a previous generation. I had the privilege of listening to him a number of times in my youth. He's long been with the Lord, but he produced a booklet on the church, and, and uh, this was his definition. He defined it as the general commonwealth of all Christians, the community of saints throughout the world, both Jews and Gentiles, in each generation since Pentecost. So we have the definition of the church. Church is made up of believers. It's believers only who are uh, part of the church, who make up and compose the church, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Note a few things. It's, it's not a collage of all the various churches. It's not a mosaic of, of put all the churches together and that, that's the church of God. It's not, it's not an organization, but rather it's an entity comprised of all true believers in Jesus Christ, regardless of their denominational or their non-denominational affiliation, commencing at Pentecost and continuing until the rapture. This is the church, the church of God. As I mentioned, we're in a series on our statement of faith. And so let's look at what our statement of faith has to say about this fairly long one. They're getting longer, as you notice, each uh, session, right? Every speaker is given a little more of a <laughs> ground to cover. And uh, I hope that the print is, is uh, large enough that you can read it in this case. We're, we're at a point where the subject matter is getting pretty extensive. 
But let's read this together. This is from our statement of faith. You can find this on our website. There is one church. It is not an organization, but a living organism known as the body of Christ and is made up of all born-again believers. The local church is a component of believers in a locality. Though autonomous, the local church exists in vital union with all believers. They gather in Christ's name as a corporate testimony to the lordship of Christ and to the oneness of his bo- the body of Christ. They gather specifically to learn God's word for fellowship and edification, to commemorate the Lord's Supper, to worship and for prayer. In addition, they evangelize unbelievers and make disciples of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to break this down into some sections that we'll consider together. And first of all, let's look at at this one. I'll try to get this to cooperate with me a little bit. I'm going to look at the first few words in this section. Bear with me, I'm sorry. There is one church. First clause in the statement is that there is one church. There's not, you know, a Brethren church and a Baptist church and a Catholic church and the Presbyterian church and the Pentecostal church and so on. There's one church. It's not the church of the open brethren and the exclusive brethren and the gospel halls. It's, it, there, there is one church. There's one church. The church of God. It's not a, a melting pot of human ideas, a melding of all the different uh, congregations that exist around. It is, it is his church. It is God's church. It is the Lord's church made up of the people that he has called to himself those who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. Okay. Going to have to get help from Glenn at the back. Thanks. There's uh, some, some texts that support this idea. Let's look at just a few of those on the screen. We have Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One church. 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we have all been baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So around the globe and across the centuries, there is one church, his church, the universal church. We often refer to this as the church universal, spanning through the ages of time. Now, I want you to notice that these two verses that are on the screen in front of you make reference to the church as his body. There is one body, for as the body is one. And this is 
picked up on, on the statement of faith, where the statement of faith says it's not an organization, but it is known as the, it is the living, it is a living organism known as the body of Christ. Let's go on to the next slide and continue. Let's look at this section. It is not an organization, but a living organism known as the body of Christ and made up of all born-again believers. It is the body. I want to think about the body of Christ, and, and then we'll think a bit about the living organism. The body of Christ, second part of this, and then we'll go back and think about why the statement of faith says that this is a living organism. You know, the church has, there are a number of metaphors for the church in the Word of God. And um, each of them helps us to understand something about the nature of the church and about its relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And each provides, um, each of them is referenced a number of times through the pages of Scripture. I've put some of these references on the screen. I'm going to go through a number of slides, seven here in a row. We're going to go through them very quickly. And uh, these all are metaphors that are used of the church of God. The church of God is compared to a flock of sheep. And the Lord Jesus Christ is seen as the chief shepherd. And there are some verses there that you can uh, make note of. I'm going to go fairly quickly, so you probably won't be able to take them. But if you'd like them, you can ask me, and I'm happy to forward it to you. Carry on to the next one. The church is compared to a priesthood in which the Lord Jesus Christ is, is the great high priest. The next, a new creation. Adam was the first of the original creation. Christ is the new Adam and the new creation. The church is spoken of as a new creation. Next, please. Chapter number four, a household. And God is the father over the household. In the book of Hebrews, we read of Christ actually being a son over his house as well. And then in the next one, a body. This is the one that uh, is referred most specifically to in, in our... In our uh, statement of faith. The church is seen as a body of Christ. I'm not going to dwell too much on this because I'm pretty sure Tim will cover quite a bit of this ground next week when he looks at spiritual gifts that uh, the Lord has for us because this body metaphor is, ex is expounded on significantly when we think about spiritual gifts. But I have put up there uh, a verse from, from uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, that might be worthwhile taking time to read. In fact, we read it earlier. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body. And so this is where we draw this from in the statement of faith. This is a church is an organization. It's not an organization, but it is the body of of Christ. Next is the church is seen as a building, and Christ is the chief cornerstone of the building. And then lastly, we see this metaphor of the church, that the church is the bride. We sang about this earlier uh, when we sang the church is one foundation. We sang about the church being a foundation, a building, and we sang about the church being the bride of Christ in that song. And I, I believe in that song there's also reference to the church being the body with Christ as the head. And so these metaphors are used of the church. The bride is, is the church, and the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
These are all important in helping us to understand something about, about uh, the church. Now, it's interesting that each of these metaphors actually emphasizes the life of the church, that the church is alive. It's a living entity. I'm going to go back to that statement that the church is not an organization but a living organism. The church is a living organism. All of these metaphors emphasize that. You might say, well, hold on a minute, Keith. Um, go back to that slide with all the list on it, if you would, Glenn. That, uh, that one about the building, is that a living organism? Normally, we don't think of a building as a living organism, but in the pages of Scripture, even the building is seen as a living organism. Uh, made up of living stones, Peter tells us. In fact, we'll read a couple of verses about that in just a minute. The church is a living organism. In what way is the church a living organism? Let's go to the next slide. I want to suggest two ways in which the church is seen as a living organism. First, the church is a living organism because the Spirit of God dwells in the church. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, we read... Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." That last phrase is what I want to focus your attention on. That we are being built together for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. God dwells within his church. Not dwelling within the building of the church. He is dwelling within the lives and the collective entity of those who are his. The Lord directs his church. The Spirit of God dwells in his church. His will is done in his church. He transcends, he transforms, he molds, he oversees what happens in the church. And despite the failings and despite all of the sins that the church has been engaged in, God is at work to transform his church, to create out of his church a spotless bride. And that work is ongoing. The Spirit of God within the church is continuing to do that work in shaping and molding his church. What is disjointed and dysfunctional by human standards is being shaped and directed by the Spirit who dwells in his church. Secondly, next slide, the church is a living organism because it is made up of living stones. First Peter, we read, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Lord is a living stone, and the people who make up the church are living. 
We're not talking here about living in the sense of our natural human lives. We're talking about the life that comes to us, the spiritual life that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That those who are born again of the Spirit of God have new life in Christ. Spiritual life. And it is those people that make up the church, and so the church is a living entity. It's a living entity corporately. It's a living entity by the, by the fact that the individuals that make it up have life of the Lord in themselves. Each member of his church is living spiritually. Next slide. Next, we have the local church is composed of believers in a locality. Though autonomous, local church exists in vital union with all believers. If you have your Bible, look at Galatians chapter 1 with me. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. Here's another reference to the church. Just a passing reference. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Paul is writing to the Galatians and he says, You've heard of this, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul was, uh, before he became Paul, he was Saul. And uh, he went about seeking to destroy the church of God. We read in our statement of faith, the opening line is, there is one church. And Paul went about persecuting that church. But look at verse 1. Verse 1 and 2. Let's look at the salutation here of this epistle of Paul to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Paul writes, to the churches of Galatia, plural, churches. And we said that there is one church, but here Paul is writing to the churches. So is there one church or is there more than one church? The Word of God presents this idea that a church is one universally. There is one church. But as people are scattered around the world, the Word of God clearly depicts local gatherings of that church, of those people, as being churches of God. And so we have the term used frequently to refer to the churches um, individually. In Galatia, there were several. Apparently, and Paul writes to them here. Galatia was a region in what we now know as Turkey. The local church is a microcosm, if you would, of the universal church, and it should reflect the identity and the principles and the values of the universal church. That's um, what we... Um, what we know of the universal church should apply the level of the local church. Let's think more about this line. The local church is composed of all believers. I don't know if my... Go to the next slide, Glenn. Thanks. Of the times that we read this word church in the New Testament, 86 out of the 110 references are to the local church rather than to the universal church. And the epistles were written to the local church. There's a lot that we can, can learn about the local church. Scripture teaches us a lot about what the local church should look like. 
on how it should conduct itself. There is both direct instruction and there are examples that are given to us. There are examples given to us of a good, well-functioning church. There are other examples that are given to us in Scripture of churches that weren't functioning well. There are examples of things that we ought not to do as a church. All of this comes to us in the pages of Scripture. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I think that we could understand that lesson from Paul to Timothy to be referring to both the church universal and to the local church, that Paul would like to have Timothy instructed and informed on how he should conduct himself. And so it's wise for us to look at Scripture to see how we should conduct ourselves. A read of you Bible chapel, how should we conduct ourselves? As a local church and as participants in that local church, as members of that local church, how are we to conduct ourselves? Christ in Matthew gives us instruction about the church. In the book of Acts, we read examples of the formation of local churches and of how the church was established. In the epistles, we read instruction and example. And so God's word is rich and abounds with a lot of teaching about the local church. But it leaves us with still a lot of questions. Next slide. There are all kinds of questions that we might ask about the local church. These are just a few. I'm sure you can think of many. Who is the local church accountable to? How is the local church to be governed? What are the activities and programs of the local church? And so on. Fact is, the Word of God is not uh, set out as a step by step manual on how to set up and operate the local church. But that does not mean that it is void of instruction for us. There's a lot that we can come to know and understand about how the local church should operate. And there is liberty to a large degree in that not everything is stated as to how things are to perform. But there is teaching that we are wise to to consider and to acknowledge. Next slide. Let's go back to the initial question. What is God looking for in his church? You know, I wonder if you've been asked this question as I have been. Somebody learns that you go to a place. How do you do church? Have you ever heard that? How do you do church? As if doing church, as if it's a verb, and it's something we do. The church is a, is a thing. And, and I would suggest that we, we should be careful about how we conduct ourselves as a church. Careful to pay attention to what the Word of God says. Christ is the head of his church. And while there is liberty, and we need to be careful about that, there is also instruction. When I think about the Lord in the Old Testament giving lessons to the children of Israel, he gave them a pattern to follow in setting up a tabernacle, which was a picture of something far more important. He gave specific instructions and directions and was very particular about how it was all to come together, the materials to be used, the assembly of it. 
how it was to be put together, how it was to be carried around. The colors and the fabrics and the materials that were to be used, all of that very specifically laid out. We don't have a similar sort of instruction in the New Testament with regard to the Church of God, but we do have teaching in the Word of God, and I have to think that God is concerned about how the Church conducts itself. I want to go back to Jonathan Thomas's uh, message a couple of weeks ago. Just go to the next slide here, and you won't be able to read this. I'm not intending you to read all of those lines that are very faint. I just want to show you where we've come. There are the headings that we have covered so far. We're now down to the study of the church. In our statement of faith, we've looked at these seven, five more to go. If we go back a couple of weeks to the one on the Bible, which is the fourth one down. Next slide, please. We'll expand that. And you can see that the Bible is verbally inspired by God, inerrant in its original documents, and is the sole authority for matters of faith and practice. Next slide. The Bible is the sole authority in matters of faith and practice. That has some pretty significant implications for us, for you and I, with regard to our daily lives, how we conduct ourselves. If we recognize that the Bible is our authority for life, it should affect the way that we think and the things that we do and the places we go, the way that we live. The same is true of the church. If the Bible is the sole authority, then we need to think about what that means with regard to our conduct as a local church. I think that most churches in the city of Ottawa, most evangelical churches, would recognize and, and agree that the Bible is the sole authority for the conduct of the local church. Not all agree with that, by the way. Not all churches would agree to that, but I think most would. But then it comes down to a question of how do we understand that? How do we put that into practice? It's not uh, an easy thing to do. How do we discern what practices that we read in the pages of the New Testament with regard to the church are given to us as examples that we ought to follow. Let's look at just a couple of examples of this. I want, I want you to look again in your Bibles. I want to look at just a couple of examples. There's, we don't have time to look at many of these, but the idea is that we need to pray for our elders and for our oversight as they look at the Word of God and look at the practices of the Church of God that were given in the pages of the New Testament and discern, is that something that we should be implementing here in some way that should be reflected in the way that we gather here? Because it's not such an easy question to, to deal with all the time. But here's some examples. Acts chapter 13. Let's just read a couple of verses together. Here's a local church, the church in Antioch. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up in the, with Herod the Tatriarch, and, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having 
fasted and prayed. They laid hands on them and sent them away. There's an interesting passage of some things that went on in the local church at Antioch. There's quite a bit packed into these verses. First of all, I want you to notice that there were five men here that are listed as men who were teachers and prophets in that local church. So we follow a practice here at Redeview that has different men coming forward to speak the word of God. You won't find the same person here week after week giving a message from the word of God. I don't want to say this in a way that's judgmental of others. I think every church needs to examine what's in the scripture and determine what is appropriate and right, what's given there for examples to follow. But there is an example of, of one that we might say we see in a certain way here at Redivie Bible Chapel. And we read that they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Interesting, they fasted. Is that something that is given as a pattern of something we should do here in the local church? That's something that I think our elders would, would need to struggle with. We need to pray for them. Maybe this is something you need to think about in your own life. Or there's something we should practice. Separate for me Barnabas and Saul to the work that I've called them. And they pulled apart Saul and Barnabas, and they did something that in a few verses later is called commending them to the Lord for missionary service. This is the beginning of Paul's missionary trip. He was commended to the Lord to go out on this missionary journey to, uh, to be engaged in a work for him in distant places from the church at Antioch. There's another practice of the local church. We need to look at these things and say, are these things that are to apply to us in the church today? They laid hands on them and sent them away. Laying on of hands is something that is practiced in a lot of other places more than I, I would say that we do here. Maybe, maybe that's something we should think about. All of these things are practices that we find in the Word of God with regard to the local church and things that we need to struggle with in our own lives and come to terms with, whether these are examples that God is giving us that we should be following here. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we won't go there for sake of time, but there we have described a, a gathering of the local church and things that happened and the way that their services were conducted, actually. We read in 1 Corinthians 14 of how different ones got up to share a word or to share a hymn. And I can tell you that, read of your Bible chapter, that, that kind of sets the tone or the pattern for how we conduct our, our remembrance service, our breaking of bread service, after that kind of a pattern that is set in the, in the New Testament. So if we accept that the Bible is the inspired word of God and is inerrant and provides for us uh, authority, the sole authority for matters of faith and practice, then we need to be thinking about the faith that is taught and the practices that are exhibited in the pages of Scripture and coming to grips with how that would apply to us today. As I say, not everything that we read in the Word of God as a practice of the local church is necessarily set there for us to follow. Let me give you another example. We read of the, the love feast in the Word of God. And I think it's clear if you read the Word of God that they celebrated their communion service not in the context that, that we do where people gather together in an hour of worship. I, I might be ruffling some feathers when I say this here. But it was set rather in the context of a meal. They got together, they had a meal together. It was a communal meal. But when we come to 1 Corinthians 11, what we find is that 
Paul actually rebukes them for the practice they're engaged in because they were abusing it. People were coming together and uh, some were getting drunk and some were feasting and some were left hungry because they came too late and the practice was not good. And Paul in that, in that passage kind of lifts the remembrance portion, the bread and the wine and the remembrance of the Lord out of its context of the meal and isolates, isolates and says, this is what's important. This is what you ought to be doing. And so as we look at God's word and think about the practices that are prescribed there, these are, these are some of the things that we, we need to think about and we need to be concerned about. Let's go to the next slide, and we'll just close very quickly with a couple more slides again. Here's a long section. And this last section, I encourage you to go to the Statement of Faith and, and look at this more carefully. There are some texts given at the bottom that you can click on, links that describe some of the things the local church was involved in. These are some of the things that are kind of undeniable, unquestionable. These are things that Scripture gives clear teaching about that the church was involved with, that they ought to be doing. These are the things that we ought to be doing in the local church. Uh, some, some founded on, on kind of the key text from Acts chapter 2, which is often kind of looking at, looked at as, as the basis for local church gathering. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. These are fundamental things that the local church undeniably ought to be involved in. Others need more careful discernment. In some, there is liberty. We are free to do things uh, in different ways. The scripture doesn't dictate how we, we should perform in some areas. What is Christ looking for in his church? Next slide. What is Christ looking for in his church? When I look at the overall tenor of scripture, and the New Testament in particular, and I look at the depiction of the local church that I see there, these four things kind of stood out to me. And I suggest that we might close by just meditating for a minute or two on, on these, these things. This is what I appreciated when I thought overall about the local church from the word of God. Number one, that Christ was the focus. They gathered in his name, Matthew 18 and 20. It was his fellowship. He was the object of their faith. He was the subject that they preached. He was their foundation. Christ was the focus of the local church, and I'm happy to be standing today with you and behind me is this text, Jesus Christ is Lord. That gives me encouragement because Christ is to be the focus, the central point of the local church. Secondly, they were loving. And I read the pages of the New Testament and I read about the activities of the local church, what impresses me is the love that they express for one another, the care and the concern that they gave for one another. I think about Paul languishing in a prison in Rome and he writes to the various churches and talks about the love that he's experienced from different ones, some who have come from great distances to bring to him, for example, a cloak and some parchments that he longed for. Ones who had come and 
expended themselves, become ill in trying to serve him and help him and assist him in, in prison. The commendations that Paul writes as he writes to the local churches that he knows of their love. He knows of the love that they have for one another, a characteristic of the local church. So ought to be today a characteristic of the local church, a characteristic of Read View Bible Chapel. Thirdly, simplicity. I see represented in the pages of Scripture in the New Testament a very simple church gathering together. They met in homes. They got together in simple fashion and shared meals together. There was no elaborate structure or organization, no complicated hierarchy. Their teaching was straightforward. Their, the care that they exhibited for one another was simple and straightforward. They had a simple love. And they shared together the simple emblems of the bread and the wine in remembrance of the Lord. Lastly, they were passionate. The local church was passionate in their service for the Lord. In the context of their day, they were almost entirely and universally persecuted for their faith. They stood out in their communities because of the stand that they took for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in hostile environments, but they were passionate in their zeal and their commitment for their Lord and their Savior. Their testimony shone brightly in their communities. They didn't fear the adversity that would come, but they faced it. There's a characteristic that I admire in the local church. And my prayer is that my faith and my participation here at Redivie Bible Chapel and yours also might reflect these qualities that I think we see reflected in the church that we read of in the pages of Scripture, the local churches of God, focused on Christ, exhibiting love to one another, meeting together simply to remember their Lord, to serve one another, and to reach out to their community, passionate in their zeal for the Lord. May the Lord help us as we seek to follow him together corporately, as a local church, as a part of his great church universal. Father, we thank you for the instruction that we have from your word, for its richness and its depth. And Lord, as we think about how we gather together and we look about us and we see so many different ideas and so many different things that are done in different ways by different local churches, different churches in the community, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us not to be judgmental, but to be sincere in our own beliefs and convictions, seeking to do what we believe you to be directing us to do. And Lord, we pray for wisdom for our oversight, for our elders as they, as they are challenged by these things. We pray that your spirit might lead and guide and direct. We look to you for your help in this. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.